Coming to you from the beautiful Rocky Mountains, this is The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. On the show today, we are heading to Oregon, where the drought means there's no water left for some farmers to irrigate their crops with along the Klamath River Basin. A handful of folks are trying to stir up trouble, threatening to open the gates to an irrigation canal, and they're asking Ammon Bundy to join them. But do they speak for most of the farmers in that area? And what would a real fix to the water situation look like? We will talk to author Emma Maris, who lives in Klamath Falls, about all of that, as well as her new book that asks a tough question. If humans impact every corner of the planet, are any animals truly wild anymore? But first, let's do the news. I hope you all had a good and safe 4th of July. Across much of the West this year, it was a much less explosive fourth because of the wildfire risk. Towns all across the region canceled their fireworks shows. Some cited the pandemic, but many others cited the drought and the heat. Just before the holiday, more than 150 fire scientists signed a letter basically begging Americans to skip the fireworks this year. But here's the thing that I've been thinking about. This year is, in all likelihood just about every year from here on out. Because this is the new normal, thanks to climate change. In Utah, people have started more than 370 wildfires this year so far, and it's only the beginning of July. In Alaska, where it should just be warming up in a normal year, they're evacuating a hot springs resort because of a wildfire. Even Hawaii, one of the wettest places on the planet, is battling a surge in wildfires. The New York Times had a piece over the holiday weekend about the ways climate change is affecting summer camps for kids. Not just in the Pacific Northwest, where some camps had to delay opening this year because of that absolutely insane heat bubble that broke so many records, but it's happening all across the country. That story in the Times opens at a camp in Lake Huron, where the camp now comes with an explosion of ticks, algae blooms in the lakes, and microwave s'mores. Yeah, because of the fire risk there in Michigan, campers now get flashlight campfires. A camp in Colorado has had to evacuate campers because of nearby fires twice in the last five years. And on top of that, smoke from fires have made it unhealthy for kids to be outdoors at all in two of the last three years. Climate change is affecting our national parks as well, of course. Not just in places like Glacier, which won't have glaciers for long, in Yellowstone, a new assessment found that temperatures there are as high or higher than any time in the last 20,000 years, probably the warmest in 800,000 years. In Death Valley, you expect it to be warm, but the average temperature there in June was 102.9 degrees. Not the average high temperature, the average temperature day and night across 30 days. That is nearly 8 degrees hotter than what was a normal June. This year, Death Valley got as high as 128 degrees on June 17th. And that's what really gets me. The likelihood that all of these extremes are no longer extreme. They are the new normal. Climate change is here. We are living the climate crisis right now, not 15 or 20 years down the road. So the question is, what do we do about it? Because we can see with our own eyes that the dire predictions scientists have been making for the last 30-plus years are coming true, right now, this summer. So are we just going to accept this trajectory 
this new normal, with weather patterns becoming more and more extreme every year? Or are we, as a nation and a world, going to do something about it? Our guest this week is an author and journalist from Southern Oregon, which gives her a front seat to the latest attempt by anti-government extremists to pick a fight with the federal government. Emma Maris has a piece in The Atlantic that ran in June on the sideshow that is going on in a tent uh, along the headgates to the main irrigation canal that would, in a normal year, be sending water to farmers in the Klamath Basin. But this year, of course, is not normal. And whatever normal was in the West, it is almost certainly not coming back because of climate change. She is also the author of several books. Her new one is titled Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. Emma Maris, welcome to The Landscape. Great to be here. I want to make sure we've got time to talk about your book, but let's start on the Klamath River. Uh, Because your article doesn't just cover what is going on with a handful of Ammon Bundy followers or wannabes, perhaps, the piece is titled How the West Can End the Water Wars Now, and that is a very big promise to make, considering what we're staring down across the, the region right now. Yes. Yeah, I agree that it's that it's a big claim. But, you know, I'm a I'm an optimistic person and I wanted to uh, create a space for that conversation of, of actually reaching agreement and solutions. So what's going on, first of all, with these farmers uh, along the Klamath? So there's um, an irrigation project here in the Klamath uh, Basin called the Klamath Project that uh, in a normal year takes water from Upper Klamath Lake and delivers it to quite a few producers uh, across the Southern Oregon and Northern California. Um, And this year, because of precipitation, lack of precipitation and water levels in the lake, uh, it was determined that this allocations to farmers weren't going to just be reduced. They were going to be zero. They're not even going to open the canal that that, uh, usually brings water. So that was a real shock to to many producers. Um, also, the wildlife refuges that are downstream uh, that also rely on water from this irrigation project are also not getting any water. So they're also dry this year, which is going to be a really difficult for them as well. And the Klamath tribes, of course, also rely on on water from the river and the dams. What, what What's the situation for them right now? Well, they have senior rights to this water. The legal standing and the legalities of all of this are complicated because partly because they're in process of adjudication and certain agreements have been made about how, you know who's going to do what uh, while that process unfolds. But essentially, the tribes have a strong interest in keeping lake levels high enough for two species of endangered fish to breed. Um, and this year, it looks like the lake levels are going to be so low that those fish are not going to be able to successfully breed. These are the Chwam and Koptu, two sucker fish that are uh, federally endangered. So with these farmers, they are threatening to open the head gates uh, they're hoping Ammon Bundy is going to come to their rescue. Uh, does it seem like now, you know, a, a couple months into this uh, standoff, I don't know if you can quite call it that, into this sideshow, is it likely any of that is going to come to pass? Is Ammon Bundy coming to their rescue or they, is this going to kind of peter out? So first, I think we should we should make it clear that the very few irrigators are involved in this protest. A couple of guys who are project irrigators uh, clubbed together and purchased a piece of private land that's adjacent to the headgates of the irrigation canal and put up a big 
uh, right, well, sorry, white and red striped circus tent there, which they're calling the Water Crisis Info Center. And they're holding events there uh, in collaboration with a group, an outfit called uh, People's Rights. I think that, that's, that's, the Bundy and, that's, that's the Bundy outfit. That's the Bundy outfit. Um, and yeah, People's Rights. And so, but most of the people who are Invo- involved in the people's rights group are not project irrigators and most uh, project irrigators are not involved in the tent situation. So we want to make that clear. Um, I think most irrigators are much more interested in a uh, coordinated settlement of all parties that would be long lasting than in this kind of stunt like protest. Um, in terms of how their little tent uh, thing is going. I, I think petering out is, I'm going to knock on wood here because I live in this community, but I, I, we have not seen any appearances from, from any Bundy's as of yet. And a- I, Ammon is busy running for governor of Idaho. Yeah. He's running for governor of Idaho. So, um, you know, who's to say exactly what will, will happen in the future. I'm not an expert on, on, um, on bun, on the Bundy's, but I drive by there frequently to keep an eye on what's going on. And I do not at the moment get any sense of momentum or any kind of, it's usually deserted. We'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed there. And, and thank you for pointing out that what's going on in the tent is not representative of, of most of the farmers in the basin. So obviously most of them would prefer a negotiated solution or settlement. Yes. Uh, a lot of what you get into in your piece in the Atlantic is what, what a long-term solution would look like. Can you just walk us through some of the elements that would eventually have to go into a long-term fix here? Right. So, uh, you know, what's interesting about this is that I think that the real barriers to a compromise are, are, are mostly sociological rather than scientific. You know, by and large, we people agree on what needs to be done um, with possibly one exception, and I'll get to that. So, the main thing that we need to do is, is uh, if we want to save those fish, we need the lake water to be clearer, cleaner. It, right now, the lake uh, has a, an, a toxic algae bloom just about every summer. And that's partly related to lake level, but it's also related to nutrients that come into the lake. So uh, we need to make sure that cattle are fenced out of the headwaters to, to the lake, out of the streams and rivers that flow into the lake. And we probably need a lot of wetland restoration around the lake. It used to be surrounded by this very large wetland complex um, that would absorb all those nutrients that are naturally occurring in our soil. But now those wetlands have been replaced by pasture and roads. And so the the nutrient-rich volcanic soil just pours into the lake. So we need those wetlands back. And everybody agrees on that. Uh, the, you know, the, the people who grow potatoes agree on that. The tribes agree on that. You know, everybody agrees on that. The second piece of it is, uh, dealing with the fact that climate change has fundamentally altered how much water is really available and looking at ways to shrink the total allocation. Uh, that's where things get a little trickier because most of the scientists I spoke to agree that we need to shrink how much water goes out, shrink how, how many, how many acres are under active production, but of course, the uh, farmers and ranchers are not as interested in shrinking that because they see that as a threat to their community, to their traditions and their way of life. Sure. Uh, do you think are there parallels to be drawn here to the the forestry wars of the eighties and nineties, and eventually 
coming to the conclusion that we can't continue to chop down forests the rate we were because it was creating so many new endangered species and, and things like that. Is this a, a similar situation now, but, but with water? I mean, you know, I've heard that comparison made before. I hope not because okay. I want to see the, in some ways, because I don't think that the, the timber wars ever fully ended, you know, sure. I mean, there's, there's still so many hurt feelings there. I would love to see a solution to this uh, pickle that leaves all the parties a little more satisfied. So I have some very idealistic stuff I talk about in the article, uh, like instead of pushing producers off the land, it, sort of recruiting producers to do a lot of uh, restoration on their properties and sort of growing ducks and growing fish and becoming stewards of the land in this expanded sense. Um, and I'm, you know, I am optimistic that we can kind of uh, not only, you you know, come out to some sort of scientific compromise, but also a, a social compromise here. Mm -hmm. From your conversations with the the farmers uh, and and the ranchers out there, do you think they're open to that? Is is what's happening this year uh, opening any eyes or changing opinions about what eventually it's going to take long term? I think there is some of that. Yeah, I mean, well, certainly there's already many producers who are who are already enrolled in different programs to do kind of restoration type work. Uh, down by Tule Lake, there's a program called Walking Wetlands around the refuge there. Um, it's called Walking Wetlands because what you do is you put a wetland on your, I mean, all you have to do is keep water on your, in some ways, for some species, creating habitat is as easy as just flooding your property for the right time of year. And bam, you've got, if you have standing water, then there are certain birds that are going to be like, great, I'm in, let's sure. do this, you know? Yes. So in some, and there's certainly producers already enrolled in some of those projects where they're getting compensated for creating those conditions for non-food species to thrive, you know? Um, so, although I guess game birds are actually food species at some level. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, um, you know, so that, that kind of stuff I think is really, uh, I don't think that there's a lot of resistance to that. I think there's more resistance to shrinking the project. If you ever talk about shrinking the project, that, that raises hassles. Just, there is going to be less water in general going to farmers yeah. and that, that starts to set off alarm bells. Yeah. And it, I realize it, that they're, they're trapped in these very restrictive contracts about, um, you know, what they're supposed to produce and exactly how many tons and exactly what kind of, you know, quality of crop. And it's very difficult for them to be flexible, be nimble, be like, oh, okay, this year we're going to do something else because of the water. Cause they're in these, these really tough contracts. And so these I are contracts with their buyers that you're yes, talking about. Yes, right. With like Frito-Lay and, you mm -hmm. know, the people who make French fries, uh, you know, those kinds of things. It, they're in a uh, tough position. Having said all that, I think that, you know, as a collective society, we should figure out ways to assist them to pivot uh, to new crops, new modes of production, you know, more rotations with with uh, wetlands. And and, and to, to, I think we need to be taking some land out of production mm -hmm. completely. And obviously, when you start talking about that, you start talking about costs. You, you, you yeah. kind of toss a, a back of the envelope number out in your piece of, of around a billion dollars, right. which I guess in the grand scheme of big federal projects and saving ecosystems is not that much, uh, as many zeros as that is. Um, yeah, I mean, take a look at some of these economic bailouts that we've had in the last uh, few years since COVID and stuff. I mean, a billion dollars is not what a billion dollars used to be. And uh, I rounded up, you know, <laughs> I asked everybody I interviewed how much they thought it would cost. And I got 
numbers all over the map. And then I added a little bit of, of extra money so that we could do it right. But you think that that was certainly the high end of the estimates that you were hearing as yeah. you were talking to folks? Yeah, definitely. So I guess that brings up the question, why hasn't this been done before? I know there was, there was almost a comprehensive deal back in 2010. What happened then? And is there a chance maybe that it doesn't happen this time around? Yeah, so we did almost have a comprehensive deal in 2016 that failed to pass and, and sunsetted. And I think that a lot of people who had worked really hard to negotiate that in the basin were just so tired after that experience that they needed a couple of years just to kind of rest and lick their wounds and stuff before. I'm wondering if it's possible that this this water year might get people interested in, in getting back to the table and talking to each other again, just because it's been so drastic. Um, but we will see. Um, you know, there was an interesting piece that just came out recently in the Los Angeles Times um, where they interviewed some younger generations within the Klamath tribes about calling out the fact that racism is a barrier to getting these kinds of deals mm. s settled and that there has been some reluctance to sort of call that for what it is, you know, to sort of say, look, part of the reason that it's been really difficult for this compromise to happen is because of this longstanding tension and racism between the white community and the native community. Um, and it was really interesting to see that that being discussed more openly. And I actually think that's probably a really positive development because I agree that that is a part of the barriers to getting this done that needs to be addressed. It, it, this notion that it is our land, our water belonging to the, the white farmers who've been here for generations, ignoring the indigenous populations that were there long before that. Yeah. And to me, it's so striking that almost inevitably producers will will refer to the fact that their grandparents homesteaded or their great grandparents or that they've lived in their house for multiple generations or on their land for multiple generations as a reason, as an argument for why they should be allowed to con continue doing things exactly the same way and not changing. And it just boggles my mind that they that they don't seem to notice that that argument uh, that ignores, putting, the parent, right, ignores the folks yeah. their grandparents displaced. Yeah, well, and that they're they're putting like three generations up against. I, you know, I did the math just recently with a friend of mine. You know, we're looking at at least fourteen thousand years of continuous habitation. If you say a generation is thirty years, I think you're looking at something like so, something like four hundred plus yeah. generations. And and, so, and that is that is why indigenous water rights are dated back to time immemorial for for that reason, right? Right. Exactly. I'm just going to check that to make sure I got that <laughs> that number right. But, you know, so I'm kind of shocked that the farmers, yeah, 466 generations more or less. Um, I'm kind of shocked that that uh, the producers keep bringing up this tradition or heritage mm -hmm. argument because it seems to me a losing argument if you're going to go up against, uh, you know, 466 right. it, 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 it only flies if, if you ignore the, the other heritage and histories in the region. Yes, exactly. And, and, and so I think that that's, you know, it speaks to the fact that there's an unwillingness to see uh, that heritage is valuable. Yeah. And that stems from, you know, it stems from racism in our, in our community, which is a hard thing to talk about, but I think we're going to have to do it. Sure. Let's move on to, to your new book, which is basically, it's a trip around the world with scientists as they struggle with a dichotomy that some of us might not expect to see. And that is the difference between preserving the environment and protecting wild animals. And you point out that is not necessarily the same thing. 
Yeah. So, you know, I've covered conservation for 15 years or more. Um, and I have always sort of made this assumption that conservationists and animal lovers were kind of always on the, the batting for the same team. They're all sort of the same on the same side of stuff. Um, but I started doing more reporting about conservation in Australia, New Zealand, and on islands. Um, and in those uh, settings, often the number one kind of proximate threat, you know, I think habitat loss is still maybe arguably up there with, with this, but a, a very, a very present threat is introduced predators like cats, foxes, rats that aren't from those places that have been introduced by humans and that are just so good at predating mm-hmm. that they can drive other species extinct. And so that means that a lot of conservation these days is about killing. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, from a lack of, of, apex predators that are traditionally there and also the the human introduced predators. <laughs> yeah, so I you know is it so I think in a in a continental context, you know, we are more worried about losing our predators, you know, sure. what happens to our ecosystems if we lose our top predators. But on these islands, they often didn't have large predators and so all of the island species ad, uh, evolved um, and they often be, birds became flightless, uh, you know, they would lose a lot of uh, Australian uh, small mammals are very naive. They call it prey naivete. Mm. Like if they see a cat or a fox, they won't even run. They won't know what to do with it because they don't. They traditionally they, haven't they, been predators in that ecosystem. Exactly, huh. not ground-based ones. Anyway, yeah. they're more likely to get nailed by a wedge-tailed eagle or something. So, uh, so they don't know how to cope with these introduced predators, and so they just get completely annihilated when they're there together. So, yeah, the conservation community has killed a lot, a lot of animals. And I think that surprises people in North America in particular because it's less of a technique here. Um, But it opens up all these questions that are basically philosophical about what is more important, saving species or or the welfare of individual animals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they trade off against each other. And I became really fascinated with those case studies where animal happiness – uh, was was kind of going up against biodiversity. What do we do then? Well, let's go ahead and talk about one of those that I think listeners of this podcast in the West are certainly aware of, and that's the tension over wolves. And you talk about Oregon wolves uh, in the book. What, what are the lessons there, and how does that play out, say, in Idaho, where the legislature just authorized killing off 90%, or Colorado, where voters are doing the opposite and ordering the state to reintroduce wolves? I mean, to me, the big lesson of wolf reintroduction, well, there's many lessons of wolf reintroduction, but one of them is that uh, when when you have a, an, a big, large predator in a humanized world, they're not going to be completely autonomous on the landscape because in order to manage them, uh, we, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a red state or a blue state, they're heavily managed. Mm-hmm. So either we're, sh- we're managing them with bullets or we're managing them with collars and, and, uh, you know, GPS tags and uh, hazing devices and putting them in crates and moving them around. Um, you know, there's been some studies shown that, that most wolves in, in sort of North America below, below, uh, can't, you know, below Alaska, most of them die through because of humans. They either get shot or controlled, quote unquote, by uh, wildlife officials or hit by cars. Um, they're completely living in a human world. So we, you know, we brought them back in part because we wanted more wildness on the landscape. And I'm not totally sure if they're as wild as ground squirrels. Be- because there's very little actual wild landscape left for them. 
basically. That's part of it, yeah. but also just because of the way we manage the hell out of them. You oh, know, sure. we, we are kind of breathing down their necks mm-hmm. the whole time. You're uh, saying, oh, you can't cross this. You know, I'm the first wolf to come back into Oregon back in, uh, oh, I guess it was still in the 90s. Wildlife officials weren't ready, so they 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 tranquilized it and put it in a crate and sent it back to Idaho because they they, <laughs> they didn't have any. Yet. They weren't ready, uh, you know. So these wolves are constantly crossing boundaries between public and private lands, and they're they're coming up against all of these policies. Oh well, if this wolf predates on livestock X number of times within an X number of months, then it'll be controlled. I mean, we're asking them to live by all these really complicated human rules that they can't obviously can't comprehend. So you know, are they really wild or are they sort of these free roaming collectivized? um, I was going to say pets that maybe that goes too far, but, but there's a sense there, you know, when I spent a lot of time with wolf managers, when I saw them with their laptops, being able to look up the location of every wolf pack in the (sighs) state. Right. And not just where they are generally, but where they were 15 minutes ago. Right? Are they actually wild if they're wearing a GPS collar and, and yes. you know, right? That how yeah. wild is that? Sure. Yeah, and 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 kind of more broadly, this is a tough life that we've asked them to that we've signed them up for. You know, that we've said, hey, we're we're going to invite you down to the lower 48, and this is the life where you're going to have to lead. You're going to have to fit in between all of our human uh, right. stuff. And, and please don't eat these cows. Yes. Yeah, you're just going to, I mean, I'm actually very interested to see, this is a little bit out there, but I'm very interested to see if the the kind of culling or killing of of wolves that predate on livestock will eventually act as enough of a selection pressure that Uh. wolves will, quote unquote, learn the difference between elk and, and cattle and... Uh, stop predating on cattle. There will be some some genetic preference after enough generations of removing the wolves that prefer cattle or sheep versus elk and deer. Yeah, sure. I mean that's a little science fictional, but but I mean, I mean you can honestly, see it happening the, after long enough, you can see enough the, of generations. No, sure. Yeah, and a lot of these animals are getting control. You know, getting killed. So um, there's a strong selection pressure. I suppose this is, in a lot of ways, tangential to a previous book of yours, which was called Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. And that book made the case for a hybrid of true wild places and places with human management. It seems like when you're talking about uh, whether it's wolves in, in Oregon or, or monkeys in Peru, there, some of that has to be in our, our future for a planet that has been changed so much by, by humans. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the basic argument I make in Wild Souls is that because we've changed the whole earth, wild animals, quote unquote wild, uh, are a little bit more our responsibility than they used to be. We can't just let nature take its course. If, if, if they're starving or suffering because of climate change or because of a road that we've put in, we have some ethical obligations to those individual animals to, to kind of redress those harms. Um, but at the same time, I am not in favor of, of kind of, com, you know, blanket intervention everywhere, because I do think that that lacks humility. And I also think that other species are very capable of coming up with creative solutions to problems on their own. So I think you're, you know, ha- the way you summarized it is great. Like we need this mix of management in some places, in some situations, and then a hands-off approach in other places and other situations, partly so we can see what happens, see how other species solve these problems, but partly to actually respect the autonomy of these individual animals that are trying to lead their lives. 
I'm curious for your thoughts on the Biden administration's 30 by 30 initiative that they, they rolled out earlier this year, creating this framework for protecting 30% of America's land and water by the end of the decade. Does this fit into that, that there it is not just wilderness, but also managed areas that still count as wild enough to save nature? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that a, that a smart... Uh, conservation landscape scale strategy is 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 a, a portfolio approach, where some places are much less managed, much less um, kind of fiddled with. Other places might be managed intentionally for, say, historical conditions, and then other places might be managed. Uh, for sort of changing conditions in an adaptive fashion um, with with the past as less of a reference. So um, I think that by doing it that way, by having these different approaches in different places, we hedge our best against screwing up, for one thing. If we think we know what we're doing and we do it everywhere and we, you know, like if we try to keep everything looking the way it did in 1850 um, and we do that for too long and then there's a really dry summer and everything burns to the ground, um, it's nice if we have other places where we've been managing differently and maybe there's different species in there now that are a little more fire adapted or a little more heat adapted. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for a buffet smorgasbord approach of management. I think diversity is strength, not just in ecosystems, but in management styles. Uh, with a couple minutes before we go, uh, I noticed you had some fascinating Twitter threads with some thoughts on zoos and zookeeping and the ethics there. And, and you were very careful to, to point out that zookeepers, the, the ones who are working in the zoos, very much care about their animals, but you're not so sure that this is something that we should ethically be doing as people. Yeah, I, I researched zoos for the book, and I, I, you know, I went into the process going, as somebody who would take my kids to the zoo and buy them popcorn and look at the elephants, um, and I left thinking that zoos really need to fundamentally change because the the very animals that are the biggest draw for the customers the big ones the elephants the bears especially the big cats are the least happy in captivity mm-hmm. the most likely to show behavioral problems to try to escape um, and to end up getting put on psychiatric drugs like Valium or Prozac to keep them sort of tractable in captivity so I don't think it's ethical to to breed those kinds of animals for life in captivity. Um, Certainly, I have got no problems with refuges or sanctuaries where animals that can't be in the wild are given a good life. But to continue to breed elephants just for a lifetime of display in captivity without being able to go free, I think that, I think honestly that people are turning against that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So I think that zoos are going to have to really transform if they're going to, if they're going to still be around uh, 20 years from now. Last question. We are recording this now on Wednesday, June 30th, just as the uh, heat dome, heat bubble over your part of the country is finally starting to burst and temperatures are going back to just above normal as opposed to the we've never seen this before hot. Getting back to how we started this conversation and also your, your thoughts about managing land, adapting for the future, has this week this, yeah, last week or so, has it been a light bulb moment for folks? As you talk to scientists and wildlife managers, are they recognizing all bets are off in terms of what the future looks like? You know, we had a really rough wildfire season, I guess it was two summers ago now. Um, And 
it, the last, yeah, I, I don't think it's a light bulb moment. I think it's a more like a dawning awareness. You mm. know, everybody comes to this in, in their own time. Some people came to this in the 80s, uh, you know. Uh, and But I think, you know, recently I, I, I said on Twitter that I couldn't remember a day where I hadn't thought about climate change. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't remember the last day I hadn't thought about climate change. And I got some pushback by people saying, oh, you're being too neurotic about this. And I was uh, trying to explain, no, no, it isn't that I'm thinking about it in the abstract. I'm thinking about it on a concrete level. Like the other day I had to decide whether to leave my windows open overnight to cool the house during the heat dome and risk the fact that the smoke from the lava fire in Weed, California was going to come in through those open windows and leave ash all over the inside of my house. Mm. So these these are the kinds of daily decisions that people in the West are making now. Um, you know, more and more when I hear people talking about where to live, buying a house, they're talking explicitly about the future climate in these places. Mm-hmm. I think people are thinking, realizing the penny is dropping that we're going to live, we're going to spend the rest of our lives in a different West. And that's a serious thing to con- come to terms with, especially when it's 107 degrees and you're sweating. So yeah, it's been a rough week. Emma Maris is an author and journalist based in Klamath Falls, Oregon. We've got links to her books and that piece in The Atlantic in the show notes. Emma, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Sure, it's been great. That is it for this episode of The Landscape. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this right now. Also, drop me a line with feedback, podcast at westernpriorities.org, or I am A. Weiss on Twitter. Thanks again to Emma Maris for joining us. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, go get outside early in the morning, please. Do your best to stay cool out there. 